The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So what do you do in Washington, D.C., Mr. Green? Come on, what do you do? I mean, how are we to get acquainted if we don't say anything about ourselves? Perhaps he doesn't want to get acquainted with you. Well, I'm sure I don't know, but if I wasn't trying to keep the conversation going, then we would just be sitting here in an embarrassed silence. Are you afraid of silence, Mrs. Peacock? Yes, but what? No, why? Well, it just seems to me that you are. You seem to suffer from what we call... You shrink? I do know a little bit about psychological medicine, yes. Oh, you're a doctor? Uh, I am, but I don't practice. But practice makes perfect. Huh. I think most men need a little practice, don't you, Mrs. Peacock? Huh? So what do you do, Professor? I work for, you know, the United Nations Organization. Another politician, Jesus. No, I work for a branch of you know, WHO, the World Health Organization. Well, what is your area of special concern? A family planning. What about you, Colonel? Are you a real Colonel? I am, sir. You're not going to mention the coincidence that you also live in Washington, D.C.? How did you know that? Have we met before? I've certainly seen you before, although you may not have seen me. So, Miss Scarlett, does this mean that you live in Washington, too? Sure do. But does anyone here not live in Washington, D.C.? I don't. Yes, but you work for the United Nations. It's a government job. And the rest of us all live in a government town. Anyone here not earn their living from the government one way or another? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 28, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where we've got four distinctly unique and different subjects from each other, all, of course, overlapping the same theme, philosophy, government, politics, and the rest. And we'll be talking about, at the end of the show, closing off the show, we'll be talking about Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrug, which has been making the news lately. Is it prophecy or is it simply causality? Saving a channel. Local TV news seems to be under the gun. A lot of stuff going on in the community, not just ours, but all communities across the country saving their local A channels, although, of course, there's not an A channel in every community. Feminism versus academia. There's another subject we haven't touched on for a while. But first off the top, I want to talk again about what I ended up talking about last week, and that was the Board of Control, which, of course, was voted down in the past week. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation on any of these subjects. You can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. You can visit the website, chrwradio.com, or visit our archived site, www.justrightmedia.org, where you can find all those other pieces of information and links. So I guess they were really bored of control. <laughs> no more controllers. Uh, locally, Steve Orser, of course, was unequivocal about his opposition to board of control. He voted against it because it was one of his campaign promises, and he looked forward to the day when the city would have full-time counselors. Pretty soon everyone will be working for the government. Nancy Branscombe said that, um, you know, following the 13-6 to 6 vote, by the way, she said council had ch- achieved its objective which apparently was transparency. I didn't know that. Um, a transparent council. Hmm. 
And says Nancy, she thinks lo- voters like only having one vote because it lets them know who to hold accountable. Well, okay, that's the wrong side of the argument. Now, on the right side of this issue, but with the wrong arguments, were a couple of the following people, I think. Not, not completely wrong, but perhaps not essential, perhaps not key to the point. One of them was former municipal councillor Ted Wernham, who argued that the new municipal structure will lead to a council of wards, each competing with each other for taxpayer resources, while there's no one responsible for an at-large or total view of the city, you know, the big picture view. The only person left with a citywide name recognition in local politics will be the mayor, making her position almost entrenched. You know, to say nothing of the four-year terms we now operate under, which was another change I neglected to mention in all that list of democratic changes we've been making in the city over the last few years. Wernham sees party politics becoming the norm at the municipal level and argues that party politics should have no place municipally because then you get politics and not progress. Now, soon-to-be former city councillor Cheryl Miller commented that it wouldn't save money and that we might be trading in a Tom Gosnell for a Bernie McDonald. She says, we're losing for the city as a whole. Miller said she was embarrassed by her own legacy as a city councillor in her final term. Since she, she is retiring from municipal co- politics, I'm not making any predictions here. That's her own announcement. But she said her le- legacy, and this is in her, in her own words, quote, it is nothing, end quote. And she pointed to the fact that the city can't do anything without provincial or federal uh, spending on the city here. And she says, um, you know, we need to achieve things for our wards. We need to get stuff done. And uh, Miller said that she's terrified at the prospect of a mayor without a board of control. She sees the next council as a socialist, left-leaning council that will say no to development, say no to jobs in the city of London. And that's not growing the city, she says. Miller sees a future in which the deal-making and, quote, lobbying on a day-to-day basis, end quote, she sees now will become the norm for the future. Well, if you see that on a day-to-day basis now, isn't that already the norm? Um, I don't know what that means. And then I caught a letter in, um, now I'm not sure if this is the Free Press or the Londoner. I think it might be the Londoner. It could be one or the other. But anyways, this one's from David Tennant, who, who's quite an outspoken um, person, uh, you know, in favor of keeping border control. And yet after the vote, he wrote this. He said, quote, This act was democratic, and we have to respect the outcome of the debate. It would be hypocritical on one hand to complain about the loss of some level of democracy, and on the other, not accept the outcome of a democratic vote. This is what democracy is all about. People both elected and non-elected who freely exercise their right to express their opinion and then vote. Can't say I've ever seen, uh, end quote there, but I can't say I've ever seen a poor um, definition of what democracy is. And, you know, I understand what these people are saying. While most of what they're saying is true, it's a consequence. It's not a cause of this whole sa- sad state of affairs. Right position, wrong arguments. Um, out of all this, no one has attacked the irrationality and the arbitrary whim on which those who voted to kill your vote did so. Now, As I said publicly on another radio station earlier this week, Council's decision to abolish the Board of Control represents, to my way of thinking, not democracy in action, but a political fraud of utterly staggering proportions. While it may, you know, it may appear to be a done deal, nothing in politics is ever sure and certain as uh, as our so-called democracy rapidly devolves into mob mob rule uh, socialism and fascism. 
which is lovingly re referred to as majority rule. So let's first review some of the most pertinent points that I raised on this subject last week when the last three quarters of the show was about border control issue. I, d I can't go into the details, but here's some of the basic summaries. Number one, how can you top Mayor Anne-Marie DeSico Best, quote, people's votes aren't taken away, they're just voting for less number of positions, end quote, but you're still voting. Now, clearly, she's, she's admitting by saying that that those positions are going to continue to exist, and we just won't vote for them, but hey, it's still democracy. So the first argument is what I call the Soviet argument. It's still democratic as long as you're still voting, and even if you've only got one party or candidate to vote for. Communism, um, you know, this is not about the fact of having any particular number of votes. It's about the proper democratic process that one would expect when one's being asked to give up one's political influence in city council, and that's why I call this communism. It's, uh, it's not a proper process at least not one that involves the citizens at large. And then, of course, uh, the second point is, and made by Anne-Marie again, I made it clear, quote, she said, that when we had the referendum question, whatever the result would be, I would honor it, end quote. But according to the very democratic rules established in advance, and I said this last week, prior to the 2003 referendum, a certain threshold of voters and votes higher than 50% was required for the motion to pass. This did not happen. The motion to abolish the Board of Control was lost, and that's the end of the story. But no, say the socialists turned communists many years later in their successful attempt to change the rules after the game has been lost. If the rules of a vote say, for example, as I said yes, last week, if 80% if is required for a motion to pass, then arguing that you only got 70% of the vote later doesn't justify any sort of victory of any sort. It, it, it is, in fact, very anti-democratic in the extreme. Again, had the mayor chosen to honor the result of the referendum, which was really a plebiscite, rather than the vote total, she would be, she, you know, she'd be obligated by her own stated standard to support keeping the border control. And Susan Eagle was in the exact same boat as DeSico Best on that argument. So the second argument for getting rid of border control is about advocating fraud, cheating, misrepresentation in order to some, you know, justify some sort of democratic reason for doing so. In fact, as I started counting, I realized, no, there's only one reason here. There's not one, two, three, four, five. As I look at them, all the reasons for abolishing the Board of Control amount to democratic fraud. They're counting on the voter forgetting that high voter thresholds on fundamental issues and changes in government structures were not enacted without good reason and centuries of bitter experience. As Joni Beckler informed us, special interests with a variety of reasons played a role in arriving at this decision. No one you know, represented the voter with a single reason slash interest democratic input other than the councillors who voted against the abolishment, and good for them. And, you know, in her false and very fraudulent representation of democracy, Beckler argued, in addition to the we already had the vote fraud, that it was not true that other municipalities had other boards, councils, etc., to replace their abolished boards of control. But what she says is not true not applicable to London in any way, since we will be having a replacement board. And the latest I've been hearing, believe it or not, is it looks like we may have up to three boards. So cutting back on the cost of government, cutting back on the people in council and people who work for the government, I don't think so. And of course, um, Beckler objected to the, quote, hierarchical layer of governance. 
calling it disconnected from the constituency base, referring to the Board of Control, when in fact disconnecting the Board of Control from the voters was exactly what she was advocating and not fighting. And to refer to the many public meetings, quote, which are, folks, th those are not voting instruments in any circumstance. We can't all show up at these public meetings, and I don't bother to anymore. I did that for 20 years, and, and the only reason to go there is to get your name in the paper. And if the paper won't print your name, don't go. That's all there is to it, because everyone's minds are made up. And even as the mayor said, the meeting that was held, the last one, was merely statutory. It was just a requirement, um, making it, every, you know, it's all like democratic appearances. Make it look like it's democratic, when in fact it is not. And you look at all the people who showed up at all those sub-meetings and stuff, I'm told that you're not talking about more than 100 people. Um, you know, versus the 350,000 citizens in the city of London. Uh, now, if 100 and, let's give, them, let's give them double that. Let's give them 200 people, okay? 200 versus 350,000? Sound very democratic to you? Does it even sound like majority rule? Uh, <laughs> is that about as insane a democracy as any? You know, I couldn't even fantasize about that. But I got to tell you, you know, nobody's probably happier than me to be able to get rid of Gord Hume and Gina Barber, I mean, but this is not the way, way to do it. The Board of Control was supposed to control the budget, control the city spending, which by itself is no protection from municipal bankruptcy, I realize. Depends who you vote, vote in. But for the record, and let's keep this in mind, most of Ontario's cities are in financial distress, and many are technically bankrupt, were it not for their elastic tax base, which is getting less so, and for provincial and federal funding. Um, both of which may soon have bankrupt sources the way they seem to be spending money. But their future is nothing but spending and taxes. That means your future is nothing but paying taxes and getting less and less and less for the increasing tax privilege. So I guess my only thing I can uh, say nice about this, I guess if there's, any, you know, if there's anything good to say about this, and there are any people left with the courage to do so, maybe future candidates for council could run on a platform of restoring Londoners' votes for a board that will continue to exist, with or without control. And of course, the control that's lost is ours. So I guess you have to sort of sympathize with the few members on council who do understand what socialism is, because that's what they've been subject to, and all the name-calling you know, by all the socialists on council trying to defend their point of view by saying, no, it's not socialist. And so, of course, they make fun of anyone who accuses them of being socialist. So, um, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for the few on the other side of the issue had to deal with people who are either dishonest, in denial, or just don't have a clue. Which, by the way, is the name of the movie from which the next audio excerpt comes from. But with all the counterclaims and denials of being called socialist communist, you know, it must have felt something like this. And we'll be back right after this break. Oh, this is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. It's not what I'd intended. Oh, my God. Not what you intended. So you're not the butler? I'm not the butler, but I'm a butler. I think you had better explain. Please sit down, everyone. When I said that I was Mr. Body's butler, this was both true and misleading. I was once his butler, but it was not his untimely death this evening that brought my employment with him to an end. When did it come to an end? When my wife decided to end her life. She, too, is being blackmailed by this odious man who now lies dead before us. He hated my wife for the same reason that he hated all of you. He believed that you were all thoroughly un-American. For some reason, he felt that it was inappropriate for a senator to have a corrupt wife. 
for a doctor to take advantage of his patients, for a wife to emasculate her husband, and... and... so forth. But this is ridiculous. If he was such a patriotic American, why didn't he just report us to the authorities? And he decided to put his information to good use and make a little money out of it. What could be more American than that? And what was your role in all this? I was a victim, too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were... Socialists. Oh, my God. <sighs> well, we all make mistakes. How many uh, women wish uh, men had their uh, periods? You yeah. yeah. Well, you know something? I'm going to surprise the hell out of you. Uh, uh, we wish we did, too. You know what? So we can show you what uh, wimps you are. Hey, guys, come on, guys. Come on, hey. Aren't you tired of it? I, uh, my cramps, my cramps. You don't know what it's like to have the cramps. You know, men go to war, they get both arms blown off, they still drag their damn buddy home. They don't go, my arms, my arms. It's a cramp and it's temporary, and they'll go away and shut up. <laughs> no, of course I'm kidding. Oh, I love there's women out there going, well, I know it's okay to man bash, but you can't woman bash. <laughs> yes, you can. Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in the conversation. Two weeks ago on this show, I was joined in studio by uh, Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, um, sh short form SAFS, SAFS President Clive Seligman, and via her cell phone um, by the National Post columnist Barbara Kay. And on that show, we discussed an upcoming SAFS annual general meeting for its members, which was being held here in London, I think right here at the university and that which Barbara Kay was uh, to be a keynote speaker, and she spoke there on that weekend. And um, on our show, the discussion centered a lot around uh, the politicization of the university environment with regards to issues like the anti-Israel events being held on campuses uh, around the country. But not uh, apparently here at the UWO, according to some articles uh, I've seen in the papers. And... Um, well, this is interesting. Following that, uh, that SAF's annu annual general meeting, which was Saturday after two Thursdays ago, <laughs> um, there appeared, quite surprisingly to me, the following commentary about one of the other speakers at that event. And uh, it kind of made me think about what issues people in academia are still, still fighting. And this appeared on the May 20th, in the May 20th National Post by Barbara Kay, and the headline read, uh, Feminism is Still Assaulting Academia. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just the part that she zeroed in on. And apparently, a lot of people spoke at this meeting, and one of them was Professor Jane Toswell. And here's what Barbara Kay has to say about that. Quote, Professor Jane Toswell of the UWO English Department spoke at SAF's annual general meeting, presenting, quote-unquote, evidence that women still draw the short straw in academia. Some of it was comical, eye-rolling trivia like free frames of quote-unquote sexualized acrobatic student cheerleaders spread-eagled in midair. 
But the more disturbing heart of her presentation was her take on what happened to the four UWO female authors of the 1989 Chile Climate Report. Her implication was that all four had suffered professorial disaster as a result, and as, as a direct result of their courage in speaking truth to power. But nothing could be further from the truth, writes Kay. In fact, she says, here's what really happened. Far from being marginalized from academic life, the report's writers were now elevated beyond their intellectual achievement niche. Jillian Mitchell, who according to Toswell, quote-unquote, disappeared from academic life, implying with no supporting evidence that she was run out of town, now lives, as a cursory Google search would have informed Professor Toswell, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she holds an apparently secure position in library administration. Constant Black, Constance Blackhouse left UWO in 2000, 11 years after the report's publication, and is currently Distinguished University Professor and University Research Chair in the University of Ottawa's Law Faculty. A fellow of the Royal Society with an Order of Canada, she won the $100,000 Killam Prize in 2008, setting her amongst the most honored of Canadian academics. Alison Wiley was promoted to full professorship in 1993, then left for top-ranked universities in the U.S. She is currently a professor of philosophy at Washington University. Oh, ouch, philosophy. Uh, anyway, Roma Harris was, act was named acting dean of UWO's School of Library and Information Studies in 1983 and then vice provost in 1995. Her salary in 2008 was $172,000 annually, placing her amongst the highest paid to three percent of Ontario academics. If Toswell were honest, concludes Kay, she'd admit that feminist scholarship, bad scholarship, propelled three of the four women to major victories in contemporary academic life, life's stiff com competition for scarce rewards. The fourth is gainfully and securely employed in her field, which is more than a slew of highly qualified male academics who are passed over for jobs in the name of a needless gender equity tyranny can say, end quote. Uh, well stated, I remember this debate back in 1989. We were actually involved with it, and I think the guy that was at the center of it in my um, immediate sphere was, of course, Mark Emery, and uh, he had some of the interesting uh, arguments going on with the feminists locally. Even got into some near lawsuits with them. Now, you know, I could get into the whole issue of feminism right now, but I'm going to save that one for a future show. However, just as a note of interest, here's an observation I purposely avoided in my discussion with Barbara Kay and Clive Seligman of SAFs when they were on the show a couple of weeks ago. And it just had to do with some of the implications of, of the definition of the word academic. Um, my Funk and Wagnalls gives a few de definitions, and of course the first one's very straightforward, pertaining to an academy, a college, or university, scholarly. Um, but after that, it sort of says, you know, offering or having to do with liberal rather than vocational or technical studies, or three, theoretical as opposed to practical, or four, pedantic, which means one who makes needless displays of his learning, you know, who insists upon the importance of trifling points of scholarship. I even looked up the word pedantic to make sure how that would apply. But even more interesting was the background of the academics with an S on the back of it, which is a name given to a series of philosophers who taught in the Athenian Academy, the scene of Plato's discourses. They're commonly divided into three sects. The Old Academy, founded by Plato himself. The Middle Acad Academy, 
founded by Arcesilas, whose, na whose main object was to refute the Stoics. Quote, Socrates is said to have professed that all he knew was that he knew nothing. Arcesilas denied that he even knew this, end quote, according to my, my uh, encyclopedia. And of course there was the the New Academy, which was fa founded by Carnades, described by my encyclopedia as, quote, a system of mitigated skepticism, which then goes on to say that the New Academy, uh, Academy rather, just ended up, you know, degenerating into sheer rhetoric. So when somebody says something is merely academic, <laughs> maybe you might want to keep that in mind. Going to take a break now, and when we come back at the end of these breaks, a couple of uh, clips and some ads, we'll be talking about local television and local news back right after this. Well, I am willing to believe you. I, too, am being blackmailed for something I didn't do. Me, too. And me? Not me. You're not being blackmailed? Oh, I'm being blackmailed, all right. But I did what I'm being blackmailed for. What did you do? Well, to be perfectly frank, I run a specialized hotel and a telephone service which provide gentlemen with the company of a young lady for a short while. Oh, yeah? What's the phone number? Now, there's one thing I don't understand. One thing? Why did you do it? Half of Washington knows what kind of business you run. You were in no real danger. The whole town would be implicated if you were exposed. I don't think they know my real business. Huh. My business is secrets. And a vet found them out for me. The secrets of Senator Peacock's defense committee, of Colonel Mustard's fusion bomb, Professor Plum's UN contacts, and the work of your husband, a nuclear physicist. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. And I'm going to sell my secrets, your secrets, to the highest bidder. We are looking at the threat to local television. Small and medium market stations, including this one, right across the country, could be at risk of closing if a solution to the current economic crisis isn't found. Lena Police Chief Murray Faulkner joins us. And Chief, given what is happening today in Woodstock, how has local television helped your police force solve crimes? Well, today definitely is a sad day for southwestern Ontario, especially for Woodstock and surrounding communities. But several weeks ago, I got thinking about what happens if we lost our local TV station, the impact that would it have on the citizens of London, and as well the citizens of southwestern Ontario, and their significant community safety risks, I believe, uh, if we didn't have our local TV station. Now, Chief, imagine if this station wasn't here. How would that affect the London Police Services? Well, start off by, uh, by saying that many of our investigations that, uh, that we have have access to videotape, whether it's robberies, whether it's break-ins. And I will cite even the case in uh, Woodstock where there was a video surveillance of the uh, missing child and a female walking along the street. Now, I'm not sure... Uh, when the evidence comes out, I, will th I would think that probably a great deal of help by the police investigation from citizens in the community uh, was as a result of that video. And so we need the opportunity locally to supply video footage of uh, crime scenes and suspects wanted for criminal acts in our community. Uh, rest assured that if we only have a TV station in Toronto, uh, that information will not get disseminated to us. Secondly, uh, we have a very, very 
uh, well-organized Crime Stopper program that assists the London Police and Regional Police Services uh, with solving crimes. Uh, we can add on to that uh, missing persons, whether it's young children or whether it's individuals in our community suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, wandering patients. So there are many, many uh, risk factors to our community if we don't have uh, a local TV station. Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and we're going to be with you till noon today. Local TV worth saving, says a letter to the editor of the London Free Press by Cal Johnston who is the news director of A. London and Windsor and Wingham. And he writes, quote, Advertising alone is no longer enough to support conventional television, not with the current level of regulation to which broadcasters are subject. And I think that sentence there should be kept in the back of everyone's mind 150% of the time in the context of everything that needs to be said here, because that is the crux of the situation. But let us continue and pretend it isn't there for the moment. Quote, The time has come to protect this resource that provides us with a true reflection of our communities across Canada, um, writes Mr. Johnston. Politicians of all stripes recognize the importance of local television news and are rallying to find answers to the current crisis. For many, the answer is simple. Allow broadcasters to recoup money from cable and satellite op com companies for the programming they currently access for free, programming which is then sold to viewers at constantly increasing prices. We believe local television is worth paying for. We believe local television is worth saving, end quote. Well, on, on another front, then there's, uh, and this is from um, CRTC, it says, May 16th, 2009. I think it's from the National Post by Paul Vieira, carriage fee hint, CRTC, ready to work with broadcasters now. They weren't ready the last time I covered this subject. And this is out of Ottawa. Conventional broadcasters applauded a decision by the CRTC yesterday to shelve plans that would impose conditions on the purchase of U.S. programming and hold talks in the fall about finding the battered sector a secondary source of revenue. In a surprise wrinkle, the CRTC also hinted it might allow carriage fee, but n one that is agreed upon after negotiations between broadcasters and cable sat satellite operators. What first drew favorable reaction was the CRTC's decision not to regulate spending on U.S. programming. The CRTC backed off that proposal but indicated it would look at other ways to boost the amount spent on Canadian content. The last thing we want are unintended consequences, said CRTC Chairman Conrad von Finkenstein. The CRTC said planned fall hearings would explore setting up a mechanism under which private sector talks lead to cable and satellite operators paying broadcasters to carry their signals. Personally, I think it should be the other way around, but it is possible the CRTC would only intervene to act as a final arbitrator if the two sides can't make a deal. Ken Engelhardt at Rogers Communication Corp. said such a framework is flawed unless the CRTC gives broadcasters the right to withhold their signals if they're unhappy with the talks. But I don't think that's going to happen in Canada, end quote, Mr. Engelhardt said. Well, you know, if the government's going to force people to make deals, that's called fascism, okay? There's no other word for it. It's pure fascism. Because in a society of consent, no government can force a relationship, okay? You can't force you to be married. That would be fascism. They can't force you to be in a certain business relationship. That would be fascism. Um, fascism is government control of private property, private deals, private 
interests, okay? That's what it is. And if you're being forced to associate with someone else in a society where you are guaranteed freedom of association, that's not freedom, okay? Now, the time has long since passed to abolish the CRTC. I know this station itself is regulated. But I got to tell you, the CRTC is the sole and only obstacle to the survival of almost all forms of public communications today, and yet it is to this irrational, monopoly-based, force-based, multiculturalist, and nationalistic, anti-freedom regulatory dictator to which otherwise rational people have to appeal to for their basic right to exist. Normal business people in a free market would, you know, they'd like to be able to disagree with one another and then peacefully go about their own business. In a free market, there are mostly good guys, and of course, there's always a few bad guys. But in a government-controlled or regulated market, even the good guys become the bad guys, and there are no good guys anymore. Both sides of the equation have their hands in the pockets of citizens and taxpayers who are the ones, the only ones, not permitted to consent to this arrangement or to what they pay for cable or what they get. So you have this top-down evil that leads to bottom-up corruption. And the corruption I speak of is not the personalities or the characters of those in the industries. You know, I can hear by what they're saying that they want to be able to behave morally in the marketplace, but the CRTC explicitly prevents this from happening. And, you know, as a consumer, I, I, you know, <laughs> the crappy channels I have to put up with on cable just to get a half dozen that I actually watch from time to time is the consequence of the consumer always being left out of the equation when the government regulates. The consumer is, in government terms, is a taxpayer, okay? Um, there's no consent or freedom involved. Taxes, by their definition, are different from any other payment you made in, make in society because they're not for a trade. You're not getting anything in exchange even though they often tell you that, you know, it's for something. never is. <laughs> Show me the contract if it is. Now, cable companies do not sell content. And, and you'll hear the TV station say, oh, they're selling our content. It's not so. What they sell is choice by expanding the market available to those channels that they choose to carry. This results in a free benefit to the stations. If they want revenue for their content... That should be tied to the viewers who are actually watching. I mean, I could be getting Channel 10 all year long and never watch the channel once. Why should I have to pay for it? Nobody answers that question and nobody cares about it. Because, of course, we don't count the people who all this is being supposedly made for. And why should I pay for a station I don't watch, you know, even if it's already there? I, you know, I already have this problem. And the backward and very socialist countries of Europe, you know, they solve this problem really well. You know what they do? They charge you a TV tax just to own a TV, or they charge you an annual license uh, for TV ownership or a permit fee. And if, you if you're in London, England, you'll see these little cars running around with the little antennas on the top looking for people who are cheating. Somebody owns a TV, they can be fined. Absolutely. Uh, it just seems like from another world to me, you know? And there's only one reason to be doing all this kind of ultra-control stuff, because it's the only way to get forced programming on markets that don't want it. And it's the only way to pay for a product when the producers are not free to make their own deals and arrangements. And the main culprit here, as I insist, is the CRTC, not the broadcasters. But unfortunately, they fall into having to defend themselves with some pretty bad arguments. Um, you know, what about that argument that cable companies should pay broadcast TV stations whose signals they, they carry without paying for them, they say? Well, what's interesting here is if you go back into the history of cable carriage of the broadcast systems, you will discover, and this is what they, they came out in the, in the fall hearings this past fall at the CRTC hearings, is that originally these, these signals were forced onto the cable system 
displacing the formerly U.S. stations that we had on the low end of the dial up higher on the dial, or eliminating them altogether, of course. I remember when cable first started, um, there weren't many Canadian alternatives to choose from because um, they were all business control, no government run anything too much in television then, but you had a lot of American stations. So, in order to assist Canadian stations with their advertising revenues, the cable companies, you know, after being forced by to, to carry these signals by the CRTC, the CRTC also forces them to block out American simulcasts, inserting a Canadian station over top of a U.S. station, uh, should the two be shown the same show at the same time. Now, to me, if you're a purchaser of a cable contract, your contract's violated every time you have a station that you paid for taken away from you. And nobody addresses this. I'm just surprised there hasn't been a, a class action suit on this. As a purchaser of cable, my contract with the cable company is violated every time they do this. I've paid for X channels they offer in their package. Nowhere does it say that whenever Canadian broadcasters play the same show at the same time, that the American channel will not be available to me. You know, people don't think about it, but those channels may carry ads, info clips, local news of their communities that I might be interested in. Hello? But no, I can't watch that because the cable companies are giving the TVs an upper hand already by forcing them to carry. Now, this interferes with programming in two ways, uh, from my point of view. First, uh, they do all that switching around, so I gave up recording stations, you know, shows. You, you always miss the beginning and ending of programs when the c cable company does that switching between channels. Often they give you a channel, the Canadian channel has poorer reception and or a poorer sound quality than the American channel I might have watched otherwise, so I have that taken away from me, the quality signal. So it's a double ripoff. And, uh, you know, for what? For some unearned and unpaid for benefit to the TV stations. I don't hear them talking about that. So it seems to me that TV stations should be paying the cable companies to carry their signals and be forced to pay a bonus every time a competitor station is overridden by a cable company. How's that for a suggestion? Why don't we try that for a cable company? And, and has anybody thought of this? Think about this. If every broadcast channel were to get a fee for carriage, let's say, in order to pay for their local programming and for, you know, they tell us, well, would you pay $5 a month to have a channel? So... Do we have to pay that for each of local programming? Say A Channel, because I also get CTV Channel, Channel 13 and Kitchener. They have local programming. Is that another five bucks for them? What about Channel 11 Hamilton? I get that channel too. They got local programming. Another five bucks for them. Um, City TV, they broadcast. It, none of these stations need cable. They're already on the air. By the way, here's something not even brought up. In a year or two, they will need cable because none of you will be able to get any of these channels on the air after they switch from analog to totally digital. So, But I'm told that that's uh, even better uh, for a lot of people because apparently the digital signal, you might not need cable or the satellites. Uh, apparently they're pretty clean and you can get a, 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 a with rabbit ears or something, um, pick up some very far stations away very clearly. So you can see some of the questions, or or would they, or would only London cable sub subscribers be forced to pay, say, directly to A London, and Kitchener subscribers to CTV or whatever? I don't know, I don't know how they would do that, but you know, please give the consumer some choice, some some real choice, and and these issues would never be a problem. Now it's the heritage admin uh, minister apparently who holds authority in these matters, which is truly a clear sign that the wrong priorities are being drawn upon. Um, you know, Don Mumford, uh, station manager up at A-Channel here in London, 
uh, was saying on the news the other day that they're looking for structural changes and they see this worst case scenario that the, the A channel is safe for one year because they've got a one year license renewal and they had a rally this past weekend of course to save A channel but it was interesting who organized it according to Don Mumford it, the person organizing this at the core of it was uh, Mayor Anne Marie DeSico Best of all people and uh, she was talking about how her career started over at CJBK Radio and that her major concern was that it's important to have as many media outlets as possible. Having one less will not hold the others accountable, apparently, which means that without Channel 10, I myself might become unaccount unaccountable for what I say on the air and just go crazy and drive you all nuts because without Channel 10, you know, they, they keep me in line <laughs> every week, don't they? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Anyways, she says, uh, you know, we have to ensure that the community is getting the most objective information possible, uh, translated, meaning media outlets that carry our stories the way we want them to be portrayed, covering all the leftish community events, ignoring all the rightish community events, and, uh, you know, on any and all stories, she says, including the economic stories. And she argued that the A Channel was important to her to be able to fight for all the lost automotive jobs in the region. Hmm. She says, I can't imagine London not to have an A-channel, she says. You know, I can remember when it was just good old CFPL-TV, a truly local station. Uh, and since the A-channel has come along, our so-called local channel is just a version of, I would say, oh, city TV uh, crossed with space channel plus a few American programs tossed in. And remember, local programming is only one to two hours out of every 24 per day devoted to local stories, not all necessarily news. Events which affect, uh, I call news events that affect almost everyone in some way or another. Um, you can call anything news, but to me it's a broader thing. Eight mayors apparently are all working together lobbying to sa save these stations. And without the A-channel, Londoners just don't get the basic information, says the mayor. We need the station to hold our newspapers accountable. There is another one, of course, the newspaper doesn't like her too much. And she says it's also important to display cultural diversity. Don Mumford says that, um, you know, he's very happy with the preliminary ruling that the CT CRTC came out with a couple of weeks ago Friday that at least now recognizes that they own their product, that they broadcast every day, and that they, quote, need to be compensated for it. He says we've not been... We've not been compensated by either the cable or satellite companies or, frankly, by anyone for the last 50 years. And he says, but 20 to 30 years ago, we didn't need to be. Now we do. We own that property, and if people are going to use it, like cable companies, satellite companies, then they do need to compensate us like any other business. By the way, they're not using the, the, the copyrighted material of these stations. They're just distributing a signal. They probably aren't even watching it half the time. Using it means consuming it. And um, basically, he does say, you know, we, we, uh, they want to send a strong message to the federal government, and we care about local TV. And then he said, interestingly, not necessarily a TV, but local TV as a concept. So he says, uh, this is interesting. He says, we don't want a bailout, and we're not looking to be artificially propped up. And I would like to believe that, except then he says that the fee-for-carriage solution is one of the solutions, not the only one. And he says that, look, he says, you're taking our product and reselling it. You need to compensate us for that because you're impacting our business, he says. Well, yeah, they are impacting your business by helping it out free of charge. My goodness, why, are you going to make them pay for that? And so he says, all we're looking for is a recognition that you own what, that they own what they produce. And, um, well, actually, they don't own what they produce. Once you've bought it, you own it. What they own is copyright. 
not ownership of the product. We talked about that before. And he says, and if the companies are going to resell it, then we need to get a fair share because uh, it's eroding our national revenue. Well, fair share is not income talk. That's socialist talk. I give me my fair share. You know, he says, you know, talk about, you know, they're talking about adding five bucks a month, say, to pay for local news. And he doesn't believe that the cable companies should be passing on that cost to consumers since they're already charging them to carry the station. He says the cable companies should be paying out of current revenues. Why? Because they had a large profit last year. So when Mumford says fair share, he's not talking about value for value trade in the product. He wants a cut of someone else's economic pie paid for out of their earnings. And that's, when, that's what happens when people start talking about fair shares. And, you know, what if production costs were to rise dramatically or fall dramatically at one or the other station? Do, are they all of a sudden entitled to fair shares? Um, you know, let's remember, Rogers has a government monoc monopoly, a legal club to keep competitors away. A channel is not going anywhere. The tower will not be moving. Its current owners might be, but that's all that's at stake here. And whenever people start talking about saving some element of the economy, it is always the current ownership and management that they're talking about, not the physical existence of the service. And that includes cars and automotive and all the rest. So, you know, that's all I have to say on that. But as to what to make of tying this, you know, save local TV lobby effort to the Tory Stafford case, I'll leave the determination of that to your own judgment. Um, you know, I'm convinced by what I've seen so far that this case hasn't even begun to capture the public's attention, as it will in the near future. I noticed they finally charged the accomplice with uh, murder one this morning, and it's about time. But uh, when the police referred to a worst-case scenario upon their announcement, by the way, without offering any evidence to the public, we don't really know a thing yet, um, that a small innocent child in the town of Woodstock has been abducted and murdered, I'm not sure that the murder is the only thing they're referring to. So I won't say any more in that case today other than to suggest that much of the future debate will be about police priorities, who it seems have been preoccupied with lifestyle, drug use, emotional behavior of the parents in crisis, and of course there's always the issue of the public's right to know. On the other side of this, we're going to take a break now, we'll come back and talk about Ayn Rand. My whole family's crazy. My grandmother, she's seen one too many Geraldo Rivera specials. She blames everything on crack. I don't care what it is. If something goes wrong with her day, you better believe crack had something to do with it. <laughs> she's obsessed. It's all she'll talk about. I saw her at Christmas. She's like, Tony, you said you were going to shovel snow yesterday. You told us twice. You told me and your grandpa that you were going to come over and shovel snow. Are you smoking crack? <laughs> everything. Everything. What kind of haircut is that? What kind of person would wear their hair like that? Are you hopped up on crack? I don't know where she got hopped up, but I love it. You're acting hopped up. Sometimes I wear a baseball cap. She's like, why you got to wear that stupid baseball cap? Every time I see you, got that dirty old cap right up on top of your head. Everybody in the whole family knows you're not on a baseball team. Are you smoking crack?
mission is yours. The board of directors of the Security Bank of Manhattan has chosen you as the architect for our new building. My congratulations, Mr. Rourke. You've done a beautiful job. The board is quite impressed by the project you submitted. It's a tremendous assignment, an unusual opportunity for an architect. You're unknown, but you'll be famous when this building is erected. It's the chance you've wanted for years, isn't it? Yes. It's yours. On one minor condition. Oh, it's just a small compromise. And when you agree to it, we can sign the contract. Oh, what is it? Well, of course, we wouldn't alter your plans in any way. It's the brilliant ingenuity of your plans that sold us on the building. But its appearance is not of any known style. The public wouldn't like it. It'd shock people. It's too different, too original. Originality is fine, but why go to extremes? There's always a middle course. So we want to preserve your beautiful design, but just soften it a little with a touch of classical dignity. Here. We've had this made to show you our general idea. It's very simple. All you have to do is copy it. We want you to adapt your building like this. Now there's a touch of the new and a touch of the old. So it's sure to please everybody. The middle of the road. Why take chances when you can stay in the middle? You see, it doesn't spoil anything, does it? And we must always compromise with the general taste, Mr. Roark. You understand that, I'm sure. No. If you want my work, you must take it as it is or not at all. But why? A building has integrity, just like a man, and just as seldom. It must be true to its own idea, have its own form, and, and serve its own purpose. But we can't depart from the popular forms of architecture. Why not? Because everybody's accepted them. I haven't. Do you wish to defy our common standards? I set my own standards. Well, do you intend to fight against the whole world? If necessary. But after all, we are your clients, and it's your job to serve us. I don't build in order to have clients. I have clients in order to build. Mr. Rourke, we can't argue about this. The decision of our board was final. We want these changes. Will you accept the commission on our terms or not? You realize, of course, your whole future is at stake. This may be your last chance. Well? Yes or no, Mr. Rourke? No. You realize what you're doing? Quite. Quite. <laughs> and that was from the movie The Fountainhead, which was written and the screenplay done by Ayn Rand. Amazingly, on April 9th of this year, editorial by Peter Foster in the National Post actually said something about Ayn Rand that was right all the way through. It was just right. And he begins by talking about how novelist Ayn Rand has always driven lefties to distraction, but it seems that readers are turning in increasing numbers to the founder of objectivism for clues about the origins of the current financial crisis. And it refers to the fact that Atlas shrugged her sprawling novel set in the United States, where the economy is collapsing under the dead weight of government edict, uh, sold over 200,000 copies south of the border last year. This is a book that was written in 1957, by the way. And sales have continued to rise in 2009. I've since been informed that sales in the first quarter of this year have already exceeded all of last year's sales. So it's really something. And apparently, um, The Economist has noted that Ayn Rand's books always tend to go up in sales whenever there's a crisis in the economy. And this has been happening for years now, which is why she's well over the six million copies of, of just this one book, of her many, many books, right? And, of course, in his article, Foster refers to a lot of people who have been trying to discredit Ayn Rand uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, he talks about how uh, um, 
for example, uh, he, he, got a, he got a letter to the Post in which the writer discredits Ayn Rand because of her association with former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan. The book you're turning to inspired the man who, more than any other, brought our global system of systems to the brink of disaster. Well, not quite, says... Um, um, says Peter Foster here. Mr. Greenspan was indeed once part of Ms. Rand's circle, but his macroeconomic policies, policies in support of fiat money were exactly the kind of state action Ms. Rand identified as not flawed, not just flawed, but immoral. And he goes through a whole series of uh, complaints we hear about Ayn Rand. I'm going to get into them a little bit more in the future. But the fact that her books are selling so well and are doing so well um, today, particularly Atlas Shrugged, a question that's always put to me, and I've heard it discussed, is I often hear discussions about how Atlas Shrugged turned out to be prophecy, you know. She wrote it in 57. Um, she did not intend it as such, and it was not written as a prophetic book, even though it turned out to be such. So it seems to me that the only people, who, you know, who don't, it's only the people who would not really grasp her principles who would regard the book as prophetic. It's just that if you're operating on the correct principles, those that correspond to reality, there's nothing prophetic about, about it. It's just cause and consequence. Um, for example, if I drop a ball, and if I predict that ball will drop to the floor, is it prophecy when the ball actually does fall to the floor? I don't think most of us would say that. But those who would regard it as prophecy would only be those who expected the ball to go up or had no idea whatever what the ball might do. So, of course, all per, you know, whenever you hear the word prophecy, it's always has to be attached to ignorance <laughs> and uneducatedness. People, you know, things that people don't know. Whereas causality is the proper explanation for people who do know and who do understand the forces of nature. So when somebody says, "Listen, if your government goes wacko and starts spending all the money and and has deficits for years and years and gets worse and worse year after year, you know, your society could collapse." And people go, "Wow, it's prophecy when it does happen." Um, no, it's just like the ball dropping. It's merely cause and consequence. The society portrayed in Atlas Shrugged may well be a projection of our future. Many would argue that we're already there in terms of that book's original 1957 release. And it's my understanding that it took Ayn Rand some 14 years to uh, write and complete Atlas Shrugged. That would mean she would have had to have started it very shortly after the you know, World War II. I never thought about this before. Uh, at, at another time, again, when there was great introspection about the failure of human affairs and the things that were going on in the world, which was, again, fascism, the same thing. Um, you know, apparently our current economic crisis seems to have turned many to introspection as sales of Ayn Rand books continue to skyrocket. But remember, Atlas Shrugged is not her only book. Here's just a few I have in my library, and I would, you know, tell you to check them out. In addition to Atlas Shrugged, there's her, her um, fiction novels, We the Living, The Fountainhead, her nonfiction, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, The Virtue of Selfishness, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which, by the way, was written as a nonfiction footnote to the fiction Atlas Shrugged. So it kind of comes as a set. If you want the two of them together, and if you read Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, you will see just tons of references in it to the book and to the characters in Atlas Shrugged just in case you wondered about that. And she wrote The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, uh, a play called The Night of January 16th, which has actually played here in London a couple times, uh, a book, The Romantic Manifesto, Anthem, For the New Intellectual, Philosophy, Who Needs It, 
the early Ayn Rand, and you can even get the Ayn Rand lexicon, which is like a dictionary on all of her ideas and thoughts. So, you know, there have just been about as many books written about Ayn Rand as there have been by Ayn Rand. So, check them out. Anyways, I think it's about time for me to check out. Is that right? Looks like that we're getting up near the top of the clock there, so I guess it's time to go. And we'll see you folks next week again when you can join us again on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... Yeah, we live together. We have a puppy. We bought a puppy. My friend told me, they say, when you get a dog, it adds to your life. And he wasn't kidding, because now I have two females in the house that won't listen to me. <laughs> Not just the one. Anymore. It's amazing, though. We took the puppy to obedience school, and I learned a lot from obedience school. If you, if you ever get a puppy, maybe you can keep this in mind. But one of the things that the trainer said, they said, if your puppy, if you're taking it for a walk, and if it ever gets off leash and starts to run away, you're not to chase it. Because you won't catch it. Because <laughs> they think it's a game, and they'll run farther. In fact, they have four legs. You have two. They'll just keep running. <laughs> so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to turn around and run the other way. Because then your dog will turn and go, hey, where the hell are you going? <laughs> and they'll chase you. And it works every single time. But one time I was on the side of the highway letting her go to the bathroom, and she got off leash and ran off into the middle of the field. So now i got to run through traffic. <laughs> <laughs>